no more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome to Media and the End of the World. Ralph, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, Adam? I'm doing great. Um, we are excited to have a guest with us today. I feel like the podcast is always a little bit livelier when we add another person to the mix. Well, because we're good for about 10 minutes and then it just goes straight into <laughs> Kind of rambly. Yeah. It turns into- <laughs> People struggle like through a, it. And another thing, you know, it's kind of like listening to your uncle crab at the Thanksgiving table. That's right. Yeah. It's a bad yeah. thing. Yeah. No one knows that the trick is just, this is just an excuse for us to hang out once a week. <laughs> Um, we're, we are fortunate enough today to be joined by Natasha Casey, who is an associate professor of communications at Blackburn College, where she teaches a variety of courses, including media and information literacy, communication theory, and senior seminar. She holds a PhD in communication studies from McGill University, and her research interests include media and information literacy and critical race theory. Natasha, how are you? I'm doing grand, Adam. Nice to be with you guys. Hi, Ralph. Hey, how are you, Natasha? It's good to hear from you. It's been so long. It's been ages. <laughs> we never talk. Yeah, we got. Yeah, we have. And there, and and the world keeps on presenting us new opportunities to talk about really interesting things as we see our, you know, communication environment slowly accelerate toward the the end of the world. That's part of the reason that we call this show what we do. Is because very, very optimistic outlook on life. There. Yes, yes, always looking toward. Well, because then you know it's like that. Uh, it's like a telos, you know. Yeah, you know. At that point, you can't do anything else. So, a little bit of inside baseball for the the <laughs> listener. Uh, this is a conversation in which we have sort of already have, although we've never had the same conversation twice. So I can't imagine it's it's a exact uh, replica. But we were about thirty minutes into this conversation in which technology failed us, as it tends to do. The first recording that we've had that just happened to magically disappear while we were recording it. Uh, and, and Natasha was very gracious to give us more of her time to come back to it uh, uh, later on, since we weren't able to make it up we right were, then, We were so. actually, I mean, the beauty of it was, as everybody knows, I had, uh, this is like a really short, boring story, but one of the first people I knew who, um, what Richard Lanham, Natasha, have you ever heard of Richard Lanham? Are you familiar with him at all? I don't think so. The he name's was, not ringing a bell anyway. He, yeah, he was like a uh, in, in the in the uh, mid '90s, he was one of the first people to start doing things like uh, uh, selling books on little floppy disks and things like that. So okay. he's very much into sort of like the the technology of communication. And I saw him at a conference, and he got up to a presentation, and the technology completely failed. Just <laughs> you know, and uh, so that was our experience here. So. Oh, in any event, but we're 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 now fine, and everything seems to be okay. And I'm glad you're with us again, Natasha. Thank you. Oh, it's great to be here. And I, I went home and I spent all weekend rehearsing my answers for you now, <laughs> so you might get actually something useful. Did, did you rehearse them in front of a mirror? Or I did. Yeah. I mean, what what other way is there to do it? Right. Exactly. And then did you did you like uh, you know like chastise yourself for being vague? Definitely. Yeah, but that's 
you know, parts of my personality. Yeah. So some things you can't fix. Well, let's talk a little bit about you because uh, you're there and you're the expert. So you get to do that. So because uh, I'm, you know, and it occurred to me, I was kind of curious how you ended up at McGill also. But can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing and what the circumstances were? And I, I, I should probably preface this to say that one of the reasons that uh, that we're talking to each other is because you're a critical media literacy scholar that I hold in really high regard because of the work that you do. So I'm interested in how you got there. How did you get from being a person who was maybe interested in popular culture to a person who's interested in critical media literacy? Yeah, thanks, thanks, Ralph. Appreciate the kind words. Um, I uh, well, I my family moved from Ireland to England when I was 15, so I uh, went to high school in England, and pretty quickly, one of the first. Uh, things I did when I was in sixth form there was uh, there was a teacher piloting a program called Media Studies. And uh, I was really fascinated having just moved um, with the difference between, um, you know, how Irish broadcasters covered events in Ireland and then going to England and seeing those same events, but being framed very differently. Um, and so, so sort of those two things combined, um, then when I was applying for colleges, uh, I was looking at media studies programs. I was definitely hooked or journalism, politics, you know, I always had an interest in those areas. So I knew I was going to study something like that. So that was sort of the, the jumping off point. So would you, would you recommend other people that 15 is a good age to change countries and cultures entirely? Is that a, a good well, thing? I wouldn't recommend it at all. <laughs> I was going to say that seems like a very uh, a very difficult uh, uh, manage uh, yeah. a little bump to manage. Yeah, it's... yeah, it was. Yeah, I mean, looking back, I mean, at the time you just get on with it, but looking back, it was pretty, you know, fairly traumatic. I mean, it was the the times were, you know, this is the mid to late eighties. Um, we lived in a town where we were the only Irish people in town. Um, we lived close to a, a Royal Air Force base and lots of the students that I went to school with who became my friends, you know, had siblings and parents that were uh, stationed in Northern Ireland. So um, it was pretty complicated place that we were in, you know, not in a sort of traditional Irish place in England. You know, it was uh, sort of in the middle of the country with uh, not too many others around. So then you ended up at McGill, and how did you? Because that, that's another another leap into another culture. It right? is, yeah, yeah. I just kept kept moving countries. Uh, so I went to went did my undergrad in England, and then actually uh, a bunch of Americans came over in my second year of studying media in England, and um, they all had these, you know, PhDs and masters and advanced degrees. I was like, huh, I think I, maybe I could get one of those. <laughs> um, so then this is again, pre-internet. So I wrote to a bunch of places in the States um, and applied uh, for grad school. I ended up at uh, actually TCU in Fort Worth and I did um, a master's in media there. And then I love Texas so much. I tried to find the places furthest away from it um, <laughs> that I possibly could. And uh, actually, there was somebody I wanted to study with up at McGill. And that's uh, how I ended up in, in Canada after a few years in the States. Uh -huh. And what did you do your graduate work on when you were there? Um, the graduate work was all the stuff around Ireland was around um, critical race theory. And, uh, you know, it was sort of exploding at the time, river dance and um, all these Irish themed restaurants and commercials and TV shows. It was really at, at the height, you know, it's mid to late 90s. And um, all of that stuff was very much at the fore. So I wanted to investigate, like, what, what sort of accounts for this sudden rise in the 
currency around Irishness in American popular culture. So um, that's what I ended up doing my um, graduate work on. But it was sort of refracted through that critical race theory lens um, because I'd had a few experiences and I suspected that um, now it seems obvious. But at the time when I would present this material at conferences, people would get really upset, like people in the Irish studies community would be very upset that I was trying to um, accuse, imagine any Irish American being accused of being racist. That's a crazy thought. <laughs> That's insane. Right. <laughs> I, am, I was way out there, Ralph. Uh-huh. So, for well, for the sake of uh, people in our audience who might not be familiar with it, how would you, what would be like an initial thing to start thinking about critical race theory? What would get, what would give people a good start thinking about that? Oh, where to start? Um, I know it's, it surrounds us. It feels like it's in the water, but it, do, it does, especially now. I mean, it's so different from when I first started writing about it, but it's yeah, it's ubiquitous now, which is good. Um, but I, I was always interested in, um, you know, there's sort of a historical there's a historical line of thinking about how the Irish were in some way uh, equal to or their experience in America was somehow equivalent to that of um, African-Americans. Mm-hmm. And um, which I always thought was just a ludicrous thing to even suggest. But if you look at the history books written, you'll see a lot of um, cartoons pulled from Harper's Weekly and, you know, sort of popular press of the mid 19th century um, that seem to suggest it. And uh, I think it's a very flattering narrative. I think it was Charles Gallagher once called this, um, what did he call it? Like a, a very a victim narrative is what he called it. And this is sort of very appealing for Irish Americans in particular, who then can say, well, look at us. We pulled ourselves up by the bootstraps and uh-huh. look at us. Now. Um, and so that was that was sort of the, the, the entry point for me um, into critical race theory. So then I went back and started reading some of the core texts in the area, which would probably be. Like even starting with Frederick Douglass and Du Bois and, um, you know, other people who'd, who'd written about race, you know, uh, 100 years ago or more, and then um, follow it up. So critical race theory, it's interdisciplinary. It borrows from several areas, wouldn't you say, Ralph, like um, from sociology, psychology, media, um, literary studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, a lot of it, you know, a lot of the stuff that I've looked at, you know, because, and we both work in educational contexts, but a lot of it is looking at how certain conceptualizations of race actually are privileged in institutions like educational systems or the legal system or oh, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Sorry, I'm so far into the weeds. I didn't even make oh, no, that, that's okay. <laughs> that more obvious point that, yeah. That's where it starts from, you know, race is a construction. Uh, racism is, you know, systematically or has been systematically embedded into these institutions um, in the United States. So, yeah. Well, let me give you, if, if you don't mind, let me give you a little thought problem because it just came up today. I didn't tell you that we were going to talk about this, but I'm interested in your take on it because I was just reading this about an hour ago. Um, the, uh, the So at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln, I don't know if you saw the story, but they're planning on hiring a diversity director. And one of their state senators, a guy named Steve Erdman, uh, is opposed to the hiring of a diversity director. And he, they quote him as saying, while nobody I know advocates for racial, gender, or sexual orientation discrimination, we should still ask why NU needs a vice chancellor for diversity and inclusion, if not to impose favoritism upon these groups, Erdman wrote. Oh, wow. 
all. Right. So this is, yeah, this is an August 27th date line. He espoused that a diversity director will result in less qualified faculty, and quote, that every word spoken by white Christian conservative males at the school will be excruciatingly scrutinized against the backdrop of the new vice chancellor's <laughs> extremist progressive worldview. Oh, yeah. Such an oppressed group, aren't they? Those white middle-aged uh, men. Yeah. In- Yes, we got to be looking out for them. Yeah, I think that's just ludicrous. I mean, um, America is the most diverse country in the world. Like if we don't figure out how to, at the very least, right, if you don't like other in inverted commas types of people, at the very least, you're going to have to work with them. Um, America is only becoming more diverse. And uh, even though it's, you know, still integrated or uh, segregated in lots of ways, um, you know, you have to know something about other kinds of people in your culture. I mean, uh, well, and yeah. it's, already, it's, it's already there in a lot of your media experience anyway, because the media has become such a kind of you know blurring of <laughs> cultural influences. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I teach um, a media and diversity course. And, you know, the first question I always start out with is like, how do you know what you know about name that group of people that you haven't met in real life, you know, name any group of people in real life and um, that you don't know in real life, sorry. Um, and, and those images of those people are mediated. You know, they come from the, the, the telly or the cinema or wherever, whatever it is that you're watching. So, um, but we have to do better than that because obviously you don't see a vast array often of representations of those various groups. So that's the challenge, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, something we've, we've talked about here on the podcast quite a few times is the access that diverse groups have to production in the media industries, which is still a challenge. And the, the thing that I keep on circling back to is women having access to writer and director's chairs in the film industry, you know, which is right. still you know a marginalized position. Yeah, absolutely. And the same, I mean, name the group. And um, although there are, you know, high profile examples over the last 20 years of, you know, um, you know, um, media products that sort of break into the mainstream, if you like, or actually white people watching something that's not just about white people's history. Um, There's loads of examples of that in the last, especially 10 years, five years, maybe. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we have a long way to go, I think, to understand the various groups in the country, which is what I really love about America is it is so incredibly diverse, you know, but um, we're not we're not as fantastic as uh, being interested and um, understanding the various groups as I as I would like us to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think there's, there's certainly because of the way that uh, media is multiplying in the way that it does, because there is so much of it, there are so many new forms, and the whole process, you know, of just coming to some understanding of them from a critical perspective is yeah. enough of a challenge. So how do you approach that when you're talking to students, say, about their experiences with social media or the integration of, I usually use the term legacy media to mm-hmm. talk about, you know, old people's media, for lack of a yeah, better right. term, right? Uh, yeah. So what's what's the key, do you think, to, to getting them to think about that more critically? Um, well, I, I think you have to introduce them to a bit of history to start with. Um, you have to set up for them that, you know, the way the ways in which these groups have been portrayed by predominantly legacy media um, in the past, you have to set that up. Because I think if you start to try and analyze the immediate uh, or the contemporary, you know, it's they, they don't have the context 
So you have to give them that history first. And that's what I spend a fair amount of time in my class doing. But even before we get to anything, you know, any of the sort of contentious issues about the ways in which various people are represented, one of the things I do in class is just um, get them to be able to speak about the issues because there's such a reluctance, you know, to, you know, people are acute, you know, worried about being accused of being racist or homophobic. And we'll just never get any conversations going or, or any you know, um, sort of breakthroughs if we don't figure out ways just to have conversations about contentious issues, um, challenging topics, you know, um, that, that's, that's one of the hardest things that, um, that I, that I do, I think in class is, you know, trying to create this space where students, um, I mean, can say what they like to a certain extent, you know what I mean? But are honest about, um, where they come from and the biases and the, the stereotypes they hold. And because we all do, we all have, you know, biases and stereotypes, but then breaking those down and figuring out where they came from um, is the challenge. Natasha, you followed information in media literacy for, for quite a bit of time. And of course, now we're at a, a period in history where we have uh, a president in the United States who's almost quite literally waged war against the, I guess the against the popular press. Um, you know, if if nothing other than for 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 PR reasons, right? You know, it's 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 good news when it's positive about him and and completely fake and false news. <clears throat> If it is uh, antithetical to, you know, to 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 him himself, so uh, this has brought a lot of attention, obviously, to to media literacy and and, and sort of the nuance of uh, real news and fake news. Um, and how has it been to to sort of watch that interest grow in media literacy over the past two years? Oh, it's it's really exciting. It's a really exciting time to be in this, you know, what was once, uh, maybe it still is, Ralph, you could jump in, but like a marginalized subsection of some calm class, you know, some calm areas or communications areas. Um, you know, it's you see it in education programs now, you see it across disciplines in lots of areas. So I think there's a, there's a general uh, mainstream awareness that something exists that's called media and information literacy and that it is generally held, I think, it, it, it has a positive connotation, I think, um, for the most part. But, um, yeah, it's a real moment. Um, you know, uh, I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't be lauding Donald Trump for too many things, but definitely one of them is he's put this on the, the front burner, I think, for a lot of people. So you have to figure out, again, back to that sort of question of how do you know what you know about whatever the topic is. So in my class, in my media and information class, you know, we look at filter bubbles and we look at, you know, all kinds of topics that, Again, just try to um, approach media and information with a critical lens and get students to, to think about um, where they're getting their news and information from and, and what might be some um, barriers or, you know, that they're only getting one side. I hate this setting up of just there's two sides always. So sure. I try to try to smash that. That's that's very simplistic. Um, and I, I know that's sort of where the, the mainstream narrative goes. But of course, like life is way more complicated than that, than just one side or the other. Um, so that's one of the things I try to smash early on. But yeah, overall, I think it's really exciting time to be in the media and information literacy business. And um, because there's awareness, you know, there's and especially with, with us being so fragmented as audiences, you know, it's obvious in the last election that a lot of people in the country were just getting their news from one type, you know, maybe one ideological type um, or another. And so what, what are the problems? What are the repercussions when we 
when we live in those environments, those mediated environments. Yeah, it's kind of funny because in a way it seems like it's gone around the back door to get in, right? I mean, the idea that these are critical issues now is because it's because people's grasp on a sort of mutually consensual reality has been, you know, kind of completely exploded. So you've got people, I, I, for a while I was thinking about using the term incommensurate, which is this idea that, you know, you've got people who can't even talk to each other because they don't use terms to mean the same thing. <laughs> and that, that polarization was increasing that incommensurability. So people were not going to be able to even have a, you know, a conversation about, you know, a term like climate or, you know, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, like you said, I think that's an important point, too. It's not like this just happened in the last two years, you know, I mean, media literacy as a discipline or a field, if you can think of it like that, or a subset of a field, um, you know, it's been around a long time. And, you know, when you, if you look back at the history of the area, you look at early work in the 1950s and 60s being done in England by people who were like worried about the influence of television um, you know, on the general populace and that we should, you know, or film, Hollywood film, um, especially from an English perspective, you know, the idea that were Hollywood films or, you know, in what ways were Hollywood films changing the culture, particularly youth culture at the time. So, I mean, it's, it has a long history, but um, I mean, I think these questions are, are sort of eternal in some ways. They're not going to disappear um, whoever gets in the Oval Office next, I don't think. Well, there, oh. yeah, there, I, I think in that history, there was there there was also this important moment when it became obvious that you needed to pay attention to popular culture, where becoming an educated person and sort of learning the elite skills and ways of thinking and everything like that wasn't really addressing you know, the, the concerns are kind of remember, I, I don't know if you're have ever looked at the, the popular arts book that Stuart Hall worked on in 63, sure. yeah. which has some amazing writing about, you know, popular media. And it was so, you know, early on, I mean, there had been hints, as you were saying, in some writing people were doing in the 50s that they needed to look at, you know, sort of regular cultures of people and what they were consuming, not right. just what was in the canon, basically. Yeah, the lived experiences of people. I mean, you know, that and that, of course, is is just, you know, that sort of um, idea that there's elite culture and popular culture just, um, you know, such an old idea. I mean, I, I hope that we don't really fight those battles, although yeah, you st I still see semblances of that argument, you know, at various conferences that I go to. Like, what are you doing on Twitter? You know, really, can we teach the kids something, of, you know, something more worthwhile right. than so how social media um i mean it's ludicrous like one of the reasons i think students are attracted to it is because you know media for them is one of those places where it does integrate their academic world and their world outside of academia you know their everyday real lives their their real existences outside of a class um and so i think that's one of the reasons that it's popular um with students for me that's kind of my media and information literacy class is like my my little gateway into my program you know i think students get hooked um through that class because they can start to see how it how it impacts all aspects of their life you know and not just co cocooned off in a in a classroom somewhere yeah. I think that's a conversation that a lot of institutions are having and and uh, certainly one that we've had here at the University of Oklahoma. But my, my question is, where do you start for schools that are saying, you know, we really want to double down on teaching 
media and information literacy, are there examples of places, whether it's in, you know, a traditional uh, higher learning institution or not, that are doing a really good job that you would, you would hold up as exemplars? Like, have we, have we been able to move the needle at all on that discussion or are we still sort of uh, rallying troops? Yeah, I think, I think we're hopefully getting out of the rallying troops phase but um, I mean, it's taught in a myriad of ways, as any subject is, you know, um, if you go look at how math or English lit is being taught up and down the country, you'll see all all kinds of perspectives on it. And it's no different, I think, for media and information literacy. As far as sort of examples, I think, you know, the open source UNESCO model is a, is a good starting place. I mean, I, there's some things that I, you know, that I would find um, problematic with it, but I think it's a good place to start. And anybody can look at that. Like I said, it's open source, it's online. It's like UNESCO Media and Information Literacy course. Um, I, I put all mine online. I like um, I, I've stole so many ideas from other people. I think it would be awful if I just kept it under lock and key. So I always share my syllabi out online. People can go to my website and look at it and you'll see all the great ideas I've nicked from all kinds of people. Um, but as far as like the person who was teaching the perfect way um of median info lit i don't know that i would hold anyone you know up as i mean there's plenty of people uh, around the states who've been working in this area for a long time you know renee hobbs or over in england sonia livingston they, they'd be obvious choices but people um would know about them but i think there's lots of people um on the ground in k through 12 and university that are um you know slogging away um but you might not you might not have heard of them so i think um uh, there's an interesting uh, piece of work being done i know by namely at the moment that's the national association of media literacy education in the states that they're trying to sort of do a bit of a survey and find out um what who's teaching these classes what do they look like um i think they're primarily focused on higher ed although there's some k through 12 in there too and i think once that report comes out it'll give us a better understanding um of what it looks like around the country yeah in some places i know they're trying to introduce it either through public policy or legislation also to address media literacy as an important component of education yeah, and I think you'll see it disguised a lot as sort of under digital citizenship is the, you know, the current mm. buzzword. But I think, you know, if you if you break that down a little bit um, and it's not too protectionist, you know, not just wagging their fingers at kids and telling them to stay off media, um, the better digital citizenship programs out there that I've seen uh, or lessons uh, are really the same thing as media and information literacy. So. That's hope. Yeah, I'm hopeful. Yeah, there, there. You know that whole that whole idea that um, you know we're coming around through the back door to finally see this as an important issue is in many ways motivated by fear, and it's one of those approaches. Uh, you know, when you kind of are in the media literacy area, you see a variety of different approaches, and one of those is kind of based on you have to defend yourself against the media. And yes. of course, you know, when you say that to a, a 14 or 15 year old, they're like, Nah, not really. <laughs> yeah and, and the thing i hate about this is like this is the same argument we've been having about every piece of like pop culture technology for the last you know 100 years the gramophone oh no what happens when the gramophone gets out to the, the people you know they'll be corrupt and it's just the same moral panic around every piece of technology video games music um you know you go back and look at the stuff around elvis um uh comic books is another one um so yeah there's always this sort of 
fear, like you said, around these new technologies and these new pop culture forms. But for me, that's so, so trite. Like, I don't even want to waste any time on this, on, on that argument, because the reality is people are using this stuff in their lives. Don't we want them to think a little bit more deeply, critically, figure out what it means to them? It's uh, an integral part of their identity, especially I think at college, you know, you come in and I talk to college students and, you know, they're fans of something, right? Everybody's fan of something um, uh, to a greater or lesser extent. It's like, yeah, that's wrapped up with their identity. Let's unpack this a little bit and see why this thing means so much to you. Um, and I, I think those are worthwhile questions to to ask. Can you give some examples of that happening in a class and sort of the conversation that follows after that? Yeah, so a couple of years ago, I had a student do her senior seminar on on Harry Potter fans, you know, and um, I'm sure there were plenty of sort of my colleagues who thought that is not a, you know, why don't you go back and study Egyptian hieroglyphs or something, you know, yeah, you know, but it's like, it's the same thing, you know, it's the same thing. It's making meaning out of the culture around you. Like this hasn't changed in centuries. Um, so yeah, I think... Uh, Especially, I'd like to say when they're, I don't think it's true to say it's just youth culture, though, either, because, you know, I'm a rabid Tottenham Hotspur fan. I told you I was going to get that in there. Oh, you somewhere. did. There it is. Uh, there it is. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's a, that's part of my, sort of, you know, identity. And I can, you know, break down the reasons why. And, uh, you know, it's part of my life, uh, too, too large of a part of my life. Um but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think those are wordy questions to investigate, whether it's Harry Potter, whether it's anime, wh- whatever. It doesn't really matter the thing. Um, the more important point, I think, are the questions that we can ask about the role of the thing in your life. You know, it's really it's interesting you know, because of the conversations going on about um, what, what's happening with, like with Facebook sites and personal information and how um, that's leading people to construct basically misinformation and send it out. And, you know, I mean, I think that that's uh, it's problematic and it's actually a fulfillment of some of what Facebook was built to do to begin with. But at the same time, there's this really interesting piece of the conversation that has to do with. So, are, I mean, are we just going to accept that people are, you know, chumps and going to believe whatever they stumble across? Or does this all suggest that there might be some kind of emphasis we might want to put in culture on people becoming much more critical consumers. Yeah. And I think, you know, you can't leave out the community piece either. You know, people are connected via these things. I mean, I, you know, I'm aware of all the critiques of Facebook, but I still have, you know, closed Facebook groups for alums and students to get in contact with one another, you know, incoming freshmen to connect with uh, seniors. You know, there's all kinds of ways in which um, platforms, whether it's Facebook or something else, you know, create a sense of community for people. And, and, uh, you know, I, I live in a fairly isolated part of the world, you know, I'm in the middle of a cornfield in Illinois. And it's like, you, you, I don't have the same sort of diverse range of, of amenities or institutions that I can go to um, readily, nor do my students. So I think the, the Internet or whether it's Facebook or other places online, you know, provide a community for them to express their identity and to explore the role of pop culture in their identity. And I think it's a really um, positive part of, of their lived experiences. So is that your your blog, your your site is called No Silos. Is that what that's about? No, the No Silos is really just about um, information literacy and media literacy being sort of two separate areas. 
And um, for me, there's not enough connection between them. Um, so, so for well, for the for the layperson who isn't familiar with those, what how would you define the difference between them? I think media literacy has its roots in uh, communication studies or media studies. Um, although, like I said earlier, it's in other places as well. And then information literacy has its roots in library and information sciences. And um, like I said, for me, there's not enough crossover between those two worlds. And you think about it, if you could put together all the calm media studies education people with librarians, I mean, you're touching like a lot of people there. That's a really, you know, big chunk, big group um, that could put media and information literacy uh, on the map for a lot more people. So uh, I've been working with a librarian for the last four or five years, a research partner, and I've taught a class with him for several years. And so that's where, you know, I didn't know anything about the connections between these two areas either um, until I started speaking with him. But it's like, yeah, we need to break down the silos and, and think about cross-disciplinary learning, um, teaching, researching. So there's part of that that you also describe as collaborative pedagogy? Yeah. Yeah, so like my work with, his name is Spencer Brayton. He was, uh, he was formerly at um, my institution. He's now at uh, Wabonzi Community College. Um, you know, I think teaching is a very, uh, can be a very isolating experience, especially at the college level. And um, I had never co-taught any class, I think, prior to my work and relationship with Spencer. And um, so it was it really made me take a step back and think about what am I doing in the classroom? How, how am I acting and creating space for him to also be um, central in the classroom? Because uh, the first time, honestly, we taught a class together, I was still like, OK, uh, this is my classroom and then we'll have the librarians. <laughs> yeah, libra- librarians don't like it when you do that yeah. to them. They get very touchy. Yeah, of course. And rightly so. Like it's such a it stems from that academic hierarchy. You know, it's so pompous. So, you know, I really had to think about think hard about what I was doing. And then the second time we taught it was much more equitable. And, you know, I'd given up that sort of, you know, pomposity in the classroom where, you know, I was in charge and I was the authority. Um, So like that relationship really helped me think about just collaboration. What does it actually mean to collaborate with somebody and listen to their ideas and take on board their ideas and um, create the space? And I, I think the students really benefit anytime you can bring two areas together. Um, they, and the, yeah, yeah. I was just going to say that, you know, in my experience working with, you know, because I depend a lot on getting help to find information and books and articles and weird things and that the whole nature of the kind of people that are involved in libraries completely changed and as resources they they the approach is just so completely different from what i was used to when i was an undergrad which was like a million years ago so but yeah yeah and i can totally relate to that because i think my experience was the same and i think this is one of the problems in communications or media studies that's hindering the integration of information literacy because they they see it as you know the card catalog or the you know whatever the sort of main main uh, duties of a librarian from you know the 1970s 80s even into the 90s pre-internet but of course all that has changed and the library library culture has changed so much and um, they do some you know radical and critical work too. Um, and I just think media studies and communication studies aren't aware that that's going on. And so I would urge them to play a little catch up 
um, so that they can see uh, and benefit from the overlap between the two areas. Because if you think about it, like lots of people have said this, you know, I'm not, this is hardly original at all, but can you separate media from information at this point or information from media? Like, I don't think you can, like they're, they're basically the same thing at this point, you know, given the, the, landscapes that we live in right these media mediated landscapes we live in you can't they're one and the same anymore Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, and, and also trying to get, you know, again, trying to get individuals who are our students or, or the public or anything to, you know, think a little bit more carefully about how those two things are integrated into each other and how sometimes they can make it hard to tell the difference, you know, when you're shifting from, say, an opinion-based to an information-based piece of discussion that's going on on, on television or, you know, you're, you're learning something that's a critically important thing about the world, but you're learning it through a piece of fiction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what's next for you? What's in your what's in your what's in your eye line now? Uh, well, I just came off a sabbatical uh, last semester, which was fabulous. And I had the chance to do some writing. Um, so some of those pieces are coming out now in the next six months. Um, I'm, I'm currently working on a piece with Spencer um, uh, that's sort of being published by a, a library press. And then I'd really like to put together a sort of best practices, media and information literacy uh, book of some kind, an anthology. Um, so that's sort of next on my to-do list and because I think we have lots of theory about it but we don't have enough practical examples so I'd like to see those two worlds merged a little bit like let's keep the theory because I think it's important to understand where somebody's idea of media and information literacy is coming from but let's also see the practical application like how do you do how do you teach this in class what does it look like um so yeah that's where I want to go next well yeah and also how do you do it in a media envi- well in an educational environment where there's a lot more interest in it being dialogic rather than you know kind of lecturing at people or something like that and that yeah. you yeah integrating media experience into it yeah, absolutely. And it's more than and and the other sort of, you know, thing to be aware of, I think, is like steering away from this purely skills idea, you know, that we're just going to point people in the quote unquote right direction. I don't think that's helpful either. Mm-hmm. OK, um, anything else, Adam, that you want to? I don't think so, Natasha. We really appreciate you giving us your time. Oh, it was great talking to you. Okay. I, have, I have to ask you one one question. Is there, and I think Adam was trying to get at this earlier, but I know that there are a couple things when I'm teaching this media stuff that I get really excited to share with students because it really gets them talking. Is there anything that sticks out to you from your experience in dealing with media in the classroom that just really gets them excited that you'd recommend people take yeah, a look at? Yeah, that's a great at? question. Yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah, last year when I taught this class, Media and Information Lit, um, had a section on remix culture, you know, we're talking about copyright, which, you know, usually, at least in my opinion, is a bit of a yawn fest, you know, so how do you jazz that up and make that interesting? And um, so I, I, I put it in the context of remix culture. And we started talking about, well, is is remix what you're really doing um, when you're writing an academic paper? Like, are you just remixing sources? Um, is that the same? Or should you you know, is that the same thing that's going on in, in media, whether it's a YouTube video or a film that references another film? So that topic of remix sort of opened up all of these great discussions. And we looked at um, the work of I'm trying to think of the the young guy um, who committed suicide a few years ago. Oh, Aaron Schwartz. 
Yeah, Aaron Schwartz, we looked at his work and what he was trying to do and sort of break the copyright on, on um, you know, academic articles and databases and sort of tied that into their own experience. So that was something that I hadn't expected them to really latch onto, but they really, um, yeah, we had some good discussions about should you be paid for stuff that you produce or who owns, you know, the culture of a country. And we watched that um, R.I.P. A Manifesto oh, yeah. seen oh. that film, mm-hmm. yes. which, is, which is so good on this. So, yeah, that was a surprising one that I, I didn't expect them to latch on to. But just um, remix culture, looking at the work of Kirby Ferguson as well is another one in that in that group. Is it uh is it fair to say that you're in the the remix game of media and information literacy then? Oh yeah, there's no doubt. Like I said, I ripped off everybody's work <laughs> who I know is fantastic and used it to make myself look good in my own class. Although I do give them credit to be to be fair, but um yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't think anybody we, we're not working in isolation. I mean, there's no idea that's so original that it you know can't be traced back to somebody else. So yeah, I do that in my teaching. Every time I go to a conference, I learn something new, a new technique that's not mine that I bring back into the classroom. So. Absolutely. I'm a proponent of, of remix and everything. Yeah. yeah, I was just going to say that the, the, my experience with working with people, you know, from K 16, you know, across the educational spectrum is they're very generous people. And if they find something that works, you know, they're happy to share it. Yeah. And it's incredible. And, and that's what, that's what I love about Twitter because you see it on there all the time. People share their work. Um, and, and sure it functions in some ways as a promotional thing, but I think there's, there's a genuine, um, you know, people out there that are willing to and want to share their work, you know, they put their, their energy and their own excitement into it. I mean, what's the point? I think I read recently, like, an academic, the average academic article gets read by like seven people. Oh, just think of the work that you put into something and seven people are reading it. It's awful, right? I put it on Twitter. I get more hits than that in like (laughs) an hour, you know? Well, I have to, I just, this doesn't count as as a brag, but it's just a funny thing that there was uh, a book chapter that I co-wrote with my wife about The Wire. And we we knew it had made it because we actually found a paper web you know the, the paper mills where you can buy papers about there's actually a paper about our chapter oh nice that you can go out and buy <laughs> in, in the event you, that it's assigned it, to read your chapter <laughs> in class that's kind of yeah it's kind of, kind of creepy infamy but i thought oh we've made it <laughs> yeah right yeah i mean you, you want other people to read your stuff that's the point you're mm-hmm. not just writing it for hopefully not just to be you know self-satisfying mm-hmm yeah, well, I mean, hopefully these, you know, despite the uh, slightly uh, scary end of the world feeling of some of the things that are happening around us, hopefully it's going to keep, you know, focusing attention on these. And the, the things we've always wanted to kind of happen with uh, media and information literacy are are coming to pass. Yeah, like I said, it's an exciting time. I see, I see it expanding. I see more interest. I see more general mainstream interest in it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm actually weirdly hopeful. Well, on that note, I think we will say thank you for talking to us. Uh, appreciate your, your your taking the time here, and I hope you have a really great semester. Cheers, Ralph. I appreciate it. Thanks, Adam. All right. Thank you very much, and we'll talk to everyone next time. <laughs>